Okay, we're going to get to the monarchy in just a minute. But before we do, I want to just take a, a stop and take a look back at a moment and give us some ways to interpret the wider story going on here. I'm going to title this, What Was God Thinking? Which I, is a, and I don't mean that as a challenging, you know, what's the potter say to the potter? You know, what are you thinking? I think this is a great question that we ask as we read Scripture and work through, God, what were you thinking here? What's really going on at this point? Why are the children of Israel going through this? Why, why the problems? Why is it so long between law and redemption in the cross? And I don't know that I have answers to those things, I, other than that God is taking his time to win us into this space. Galatians 4 talks about when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son into the world. There's something God's doing that takes care of that place. And so some of the questions that we're going to look at as we work through this is, is really about Man, what were you thinking? And what about this religious, all this religious life Israel was given? How does that work out? And I just want to talk about that for a moment. First thing I want to look at is this map of Israel. Because one of the, what, God, what are you thinking things could be? How did God end up putting Israel where he put Israel? Which is right here. The large civilizations of the day through even the time back to Abraham and then going forward, the big cultures we know are right here. This is where Abraham came out of. This was Persia, Babylon, Assyria, uh, Ur of the Chaldees, where Abraham comes. This is one huge pocket of civilization. It's one of the oldest, brightest. It's the Euphrates River Valley runs through here. There's a huge civilization here. There's a huge civilization here, Egypt. And uh, they've got a whole bunch of stuff they know and, you know, stuff they've built. And they're, they're a huge power as well. And there's the beginning of the, the Greek Roman Empire. There's a whole group of folks up in this area that, again, are a large group of civilized people. That's where Alexander the Great's going to come from. Okay, so you've got these groups of people in these three areas. And they have all kinds of resources and needs. You have Israel right here. And this looks like, well, they've got a big spot here too. But they don't. They've got a very narrow spot. Right here begins this desert. This is a huge desert out here. This is the Mediterranean Sea right here. So what God has done, when God gave Israel this place, this were the Mediterranean Sea. Let's take this table as the Mediterranean Sea. On this side, they're backed up against that. On this side, they're backed up against the desert. This wall can be the desert. Out here, you, you can't live out there. You can't travel across that. So they're, they're trapped between the sea and the desert. This is a very narrow strip of land. And when this group wants to trade with this group, where do they go? Right? And when this group wants to trade with this group, where do they go? In fact, not only do they go here to get to Egypt, they go here to get to Mesopotamia. So God puts Israel, in one sense, in the worst place piece of land, prime real estate, if you're into commercial investment, this is where all trade has to go through. This is why they get conquered all the time, because, wow, this would be great land to own by the Egyptians, by the Babylonians, by whomever, because whoever controls this controls the trade routes. Now, in one sense, God's put them there to be a blessing. So, and what a better place to be a blessing to all the nations of the world, because they're walking right through you all the time. And if you're crammed in against the sea and the desert, and you've got people trading through, plus Israel didn't have the same number of resources that the other groups had. They had many more resources. They're all trading with each other. And Israel doesn't have that much to trade. They've got a lot to sustain themselves, but they're, they're not a big trading partner of any of these civilizations. So when you get this picture, compressed by the sea and the desert, held in check by that reality, and then in a place where, gosh, everybody else wants that. Because if you control Megiddo, Megiddo is one of those 
passes through the mountains where, which is Armageddon is going to be someday. Megiddo was a thriving community because that's where all the passes went through. If you own Megiddo, you get to charge taxes to traders coming through. So everybody wants to own Megiddo. You get to charge taxes for people trading through your land. This becomes the key intersection of the world. And here's why God puts it. I think one, if you're going to be a blessing to the world, you're in a great spot to spread a message around the world. Now, Israel defaulted on that. They quickly did, saw that their, their being blessed was a privilege, not they were being blessed to bless. And so a lot of the thought from Israel was we're God's privileged people and the rest of those people are pagans. So they didn't have that sense of being a blessing. The other thing I think God's doing is I'm putting you in a place where you're going to have to trust me to survive. And I, I think God, what God knows best for us is when we live in a place of trust with him, that's where life really happens. And God actually put them in a place that was beyond themselves to maintain. Because from the beginning, God wanted to know, I am your defense. I'm your tower. I'm the place you can run to. So part of what was God thinking putting them on this piece of real estate, which is still not for the same reasons because trade doesn't run through Israel in the same way, but still this is today the whole focal point of the Middle East. And who gets to control that land and, and the continued battle? God puts them there because I want you to learn to trust me. And if you don't trust me, then you're just going to get devoured, which they did. So what was God thinking? Some of the questions to consider. What if God wasn't as offended at our sin, other than we've been told, other than the damage it does to us? See, I grew up thinking that God's just, you know, our sin offends his holiness and he's just it just enrages him our definition of wrath was enragement and so that God has to satisfy himself by killing something that that was the construct with began the story Jesus doesn't seem all that offended could it be that the reason Isaiah feels unworthy in his vision in the throne of God is not because God wants him to it's just because of the shame that overruns fallen humanity that the sense of unworthiness wasn't coming from God. It was coming internally. That when God shows up and passes by the cleft of the rock, the reason Moses can't look on God was not because God was scary, but because Moses' shame would have devoured him because that shame had yet to be removed in Christ, that bondage of sin and shame. So we've got a very different story going on. We, we see Jesus showing up in the Gospels. He's entreating sinners. He's going to lunch with Zacchaeus. He's not this enraged, offended deity. He sees sinners, as he says in Matthew chapter 9, as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's very different than offend perpetrators of horrible evil. That's not the picture we get of God. It is the impression men had of him in the Old Covenant, for sure. Jesus comes to show us in that point, you're wrong about God. Oh, his sin has, your sin has caused incredible destruction to you and to people around you and to the world God created. And yes, God wants to win you out of it, but he sees you as harassed and helpless. So what God's doing about sin in the old covenant, he's trying to contain it to some degree and fears the modality, fear and law is the way God's doing that to hold us till the fullness of time come and God can be born into the world. What if God gave Israel a better religion than the one they had to hold them in check until he could take it from them? That's what I think is true. That's why Jesus comes to fulfill that whole religious construct. We're still using that religious construct as a model for the way we should live under the new covenant. As I said to you before, we live as if the new covenant never happened. We live, most of us, the religious 
constructs we believe as if the cross never happened and the same things we thought were true about God before the cross, in our shame, we still believe to be true of God when he's freed us from that shame. And that continues to lead us down roads of ways we do things that are less than what God wants us to be. What if sin's destruction is its own punishment? What if when Paul says the wages of sin is death in Romans 6, he's not saying when you sin, God kills you. What if he's saying sin kills you? Sin is its own destruction. I think that becomes true in Scripture. In the early days, it's God mets out punishment. You don't do what I want. This is going to happen. There's punishment being met out because Israel's not a place of understanding that sin is destruction. Without the cross, you know what sin is? Sin's the fun stuff God won't let you do. That's why you keep falling victim to it. It's, it's pleasure in sin for a season. This sin is the fun stuff God doesn't want you to do. That's how every legalist sees sin, which is why they're so angry about sin and people who get away with sin. And they want sin punished because they see you're getting your fun now. You should get punished for it. I grew up that way. The free 60s, you know, love, sex, and drugs, the hippie movement back in California, and my friends are dropping acid and having sex, and I'm, I'm the goody two-shoes boy, and doggone do I want them punished. It's not that I see righteousness as, man, this is the best way to live. I wasn't seeing it that way. I was like, okay, I keep these stupid rules because I don't want to burn forever. And then what really ticked me off, this is the older brother part of my life from the parable of the prodigal, the Jesus people movement. And these people that got sex and drugs now got Jesus. Hold it. You got sex and drugs for 10, 15 years, and now you get Jesus and forgiven. And that, now, that, now I'm really not thinking that's fair. That's legalistic mentality. I don't see it that way now. I see even though at a young age, it was fear that held my sin in check. I'm grateful that I didn't do those things and suffer the consequences of those things in my life. Now I see righteousness as the irresistible reality of God to live in, that God's right about everything. And living the way he wants us to live is not the horrible stuff God makes us do. It's the great stuff that lets us live the way God created us to live. Sin is the distortion. Righteousness is the freedom. Legalists can't see that. Israel's not seeing that. So punishment is being imposed on the outside, so they get that sense of it. But when you get to the New Covenant, what you really get the sense of, sin is its own worst punishment. When somebody's doing wrong stuff to you, the reason you get to forgive them is, one, first of all, you realize you've done worse stuff to other people. So, I, and God's forgiven me, so why wouldn't I forgive people doing rotten stuff to me? That, that's part of it. The other part of it is when you see that the person doing wrong to you is reaping in themselves far worse in their life than they're even giving you. The man who betrayed me in ministry and resigned me one day when I was out of town speaking somewhere else. And I decided to go on that journey. I could have won my job back, but I, I felt like God was asking me to, I've got more to teach if you walk away than if you stay. So I walked away. Uh, I still look back at that as a bit of a miracle because I'm more of a fighter than that. And I don't know how God sucked me into that Jehovah sneaky kind of moment, but he, he did. And I found myself outside the thing I thought I wanted to be a part of. And then I found that God was teaching me more than I'd ever conceived to be before. And now I look back at the one who was betraying me, taking away my job, my income, my friendships, my reputation. All those things end up being what, what Joseph says, what you intended for evil, God used for great good. I'm a different person today because of that experience. He's a different person today because of that experience. Trapped in stuff that I am so glad not to be trapped in anymore. 
I see the bond. I now see in his life that the bondage of sin and treating people the way you treat people because you think you're trying to get something for yourself and you may externally get the thing you want, but in the end, you've destroyed yourself. And why do we fear judgment when creation exalts at his? We already talked about that one, you know. Judgment in the old covenant and in the new especially is creation longs in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Romans 8. This is God's redeeming a world to himself. The judgment of God is not something we need to be afraid of as if he's going to punish and all. It's God setting right what sin twisted and sin broke. Old Testament misconceptions that we get overturned in the new. Some foods are unclean. We find out, no, that's not true. They all are. God needs our sacrifice. That's already being overturned in the Old Testament. The story from Abraham that I gave you, Psalm 50 and 51, David's talking about you don't need sacrifice. You don't even need our offerings. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. That's Psalm 50. So even in the Old Testament, that begins to be adjusted. And then in the New Testament, Hebrews goes on that none of that stuff could make the worshiper perfect in conscience. It couldn't change us. It wasn't a sacrifice God needed from us. It was a sacrifice we needed from God to make our life change. It's completely opposite of what we thought it was. People's sin is the cause of their own pain. That's one of those, oh, excuse me, God does not live in buildings made with hands. That changes the whole thing about tabernacle and temple and what was going on in those moments. It wasn't God really living there. It was God pretending to live there so they could come a little closer to the milk bowl as those stray puppies that are lost in the darkness. People's sin is the cause of their own pain. We get to James for James 1, John 9, the, the Tower of Siloam Jesus talks about where Jesus says to him, do you think that the tower fell, that the people who died were any worse than the people who, who it missed? You think the people in the Twin Towers on 9-11, the people, God made sure on that day only evil people were in towers being killed and there weren't any good people there. Well, that's just not true. And then Jesus even says, as long as you're in the world, you will have suffering. You will, you'll have trouble, but don't, don't fear. I've overcome the world. Every writer of the New Testament tells us, Living for Jesus will make your life more complicated because the world will react to the loving God in you the same way they react to the loving God when he was here in Christ. And that is they killed him. They brutally killed him as a way of unmasking, as a way of reacting to God's love. So he just says suffering is not just the, it's not the result of sin. Sometimes you just, there's the brokenness of a world, a world out of sync with the creator. That's part of it. Part of it is living the way Jesus wants you to live. People are going to take advantage of you and people are going to despise you. And that's okay too because Jesus went through it. You, you can, he'll get us through it too. God is responsible for everything that happens. We already talked about that a little bit. But the idea that God if, if Paul had an evil spirit, the evil spirit came from God. If uh, a bad thing happens, God did it. it the, the God's anger must have burned against it. So we're seeing that misperception throughout a lot of the language of the Old Testament. When you see it, just ask yourself, do you see the Jesus of the New Testament scriptures doing this? And if you don't, then it's not God doing it. There's other agencies in play. There's the enemy. There's the, the, the wickedness of a world. There's a creation out of sync with the creator. There's lots of other agencies for suffering than the one that the Old Testament almost exclusively puts it on. Job is the one, as I told you, begins to unmask that. And finally, in the Old Testament, you've got God lying, God sleeping, God burning with anger, God destroying instead of being the rescuer. What I hope we see as we unpack this story and what I want you to look for as you read the Old Testament, what I look for all the time is how is God rescuing here? How is God inviting the strays out of the darkness into his light? And it is a long 3,000, 4,000 year history in various stages of the revelation from Abraham to Moses to David to on to inviting us out of that darkness. 
Here's what changes about living a life. And here's what I mean by telling you. Most of us live, most Christians live as if the cross never happened. The old covenant, the five major components, priesthood, temple, Sabbath, sacrifice, and law. Let's just take those five. 21st century Christianity, we have counterparts to all of those. For priesthood, we have clergy or now that clergy gets a little bit, it might be your favorite author you want to hang out with or read his books or follow or whatever. We, we have somebody who becomes the iconic view of God for us. We still have clergy. Temple, we still have a sense of sanctuary. I was taught as a kid, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. That that was referring to the first Baptist church building in Selma, California when I grew up. And my mom and dad were volunteers for a lot of stuff. And I remember mom one time, we, she was in the fireside room preparing for some kind of meal thing. And I had to go over and get something from the pastor's office. And I had to walk through the sanctuary alone. And I remember just walking there going, oh, God, don't say a word. I mean, that was God's house to me. God was in there in a way he wasn't in my bedroom at night or he wasn't on my dad's farm with us during the day. That was all a misconception. And I remember walking through there. We still have sanctuary. Sabbath, well, we've moved it to Sunday, but we even had blue laws about Sunday and what you could and couldn't do because we're still trying to observe the Sabbath is a day. We act as if the cross never happened and the Sabbath changed to something else. Sacrifice, tithes and offerings, we've just changed it to that and sacrifices are surrender to God's will and doing the very difficult things for God and going to Africa, if God calls you to Africa, or going to India or wherever God might ask you to go. We, we see sacrifice now as our obedience to God, but it's still that same God needs us to do something for us to be okay with Him. So we still hold on to sacrifice, and we still hold on to law. We call it New Testament principles, putting off the old man, putting on the new, but it's still, we, we traded following Him, a real voice in our life, for following a set of guidelines that God gave us through people. Now, what did he really want in the new covenant? I think instead of priesthood, they went to clergy, we're a nation of priests. Every one of us gets to engage God. That's the reality that we've missed, that there is no clergy-laity distinction, not in the heart of God. We are all, if you're, if you're going to uh, ordain anyone, ordain us all, because we are all ordained to follow the life of the Spirit, to listen to Him, to be instructed by Him, to, to live that life. For temple, we don't have a sanctuary. What, what God made clear in the cross, He's in every, there is no sacred space. God's in every place at every time. And even sacred space, we think about it as, okay, it might be our Sunday morning service or it might be our quiet time in the morning. We have these venues or home group, we have these venues where God's more real than when I'm driving to work or when I'm sitting in a business appointment, or when I'm mowing my lawn, or vacuuming the house, or we, we've gotten an idea of sacred space. God blew that up in the, old, in, in the New Covenant. I'm every, I, I came to live with you. I'm not asking you to come to live in these little sanctified spaces where it's safe to be with God. Because of the work of the cross, I get to be with you in everything at every place. And now, again, not, the Sabbath isn't Sunday, for Pete's sakes. Hebrews 3 and 4, the Sabbath is a way to live where we cease from our own labors and participate in the Sabbath rest of God, which is a way to live, not a day to observe. That's the greater reality. The sacrifice now, not tithes and offerings. We're freed from this. The sacrifice has been given. We've been benefactors of a generous father. And now the early church didn't teach tithing. They didn't teach sacrifice and giving, sacrificial giving. What they taught was generosity. You know a generous father. When you know how generous father is with you, you will be generous with other people. Most of us, though, don't live with a generous God. We live with this miserly God that just picks at everything in our lives because, you know, I've prayed all these prayers and God hasn't given me what I wanted. God isn't generous with your agenda. That's true. If you're finding that to be true, 
That's the best thing in the world to finally let go of your agenda. What God's very generous about is the space he wants you to live in. When you're living in his agenda, what you're going to find is there's resource enough, there's time enough, there's life enough to then live generously in the world, both with finances and with your time to share with others. You live with a generous God. And Jesus even talked about in the whole upper room and remembering the poor, generosity begets generosity. Even if it's just a cup of cold water in my name, start there. Generosity and we live on, so the whole sense of sacrifice isn't even part of our, of our life now. And then the law, New Testament principles. And what we were invited to is, no, let's follow the spirit. If you follow the spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. The mindset on the flesh, Romans 8, is death. That's not only the mind that indulges the flesh. That's the mind seeking to abstain from the flesh. It's still a mindset on the flesh. So what they say, if you follow the spirit, if you just wake up and say, Jesus, what are you doing in my life today? Holy Spirit, where do you want me to be involved in it? And the more I'm focused on what he's doing, I don't find time or the inclination to be involved in the things that are destructive to my life. Now, it doesn't help to know, and I think why we have those lists of old man, new man, or the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5. So we can read those once in a while and go, okay, yeah, my life's out of bounds here because I am doing some of these things. I do have envy in my heart. I do have. So I get to go to God and say, wow, there's places here. I still need you to work. And God, wow, thanks, Wayne. I had no idea. Uh, he knows. He knows well. He's got to do that with me. This is the book I was going to tell you about, Is God a Moral Monster by Paul Copen. It's in your notes. You don't have to write it down. Uh, this, if you really care about the minutia of the law and how God with women, with food, with cleansing rituals, is it has this movement, took it just a little bit better than was already in the culture of, of, of Canaan. And then through the history of Israel, moves that on until Christ fulfills the greater realities. You really get what he calls redemptive flow, or calls redemptive movement, what I've called revelational flow, is God inviting us out. That the Old Testament as a story is not God perfectly gives us in the law everything he wants us to know about him. He's giving them what they needed to know to make the next step. Then he changes that during the time of David, changes it more through Isaiah, more in the time of Nehemiah. And that's what we get to talk about going forward.